welcome to the Saddle Cartel Podcast. We're going to talk tips, tricks, tactics, and saddle hunting scenarios with our staff from across the country, members of our Facebook page, manufacturers in the industry, and we'll probably get into a few campfire stories along the way. Enjoy the ride. Let's get into it. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Saddle Cartel Podcast. Uh, have a very special guest on the line with us tonight. Uh, if you've been living under a rock, you probably don't know his name, but if you have been in the saddle game any amount of time, this guy's a big influence um, in the saddle world and on YouTube. Uh, I'd like to introduce Greg Staggs. Greg, thanks for joining us, buddy. Hey, John. I appreciate it, man. It's my pleasure to be on. Hey, man. I've, I'm kind of starstruck a little bit just talking to you because you've been one of the big influences for me. Um, one of the first videos I watched and getting into saddle hunting i watched your stuff and i've kind of just copied and pasted everything you've talked about since buddy well i, I appreciate that man yeah uh you know it's it, it's been uh it's been a cool cool ride uh you know i'm, I'm kind of unique in the fact that i i mean i started back when uh you know mobile hunting really wasn't that cool now it seems to be the in vogue thing and and you know it your deer doesn't matter if you didn't kill it on public land but you know i, I started off when that's all all we had to hunt and, and so I've, I've come a long way and, and that experience, I think a lot of people picked up on that in my videos and stuff is that, you know, I'm not just out here, I'm not just trying to get views or a lot of crap, but I don't even really promote that hard as far as trying to do anything like that. I just, I have a lot of experience. And I think a lot of people relate to it. You do. And it, it comes through as, you know, completely honest and, you know, just somebody just putting out good stuff so people can kind of just learn and take advice and get into it. So, you know, I've, I've trusted your integrity and just your, the way you approach things from the onset. And again, I just can't thank you enough for everything you do for the hunting community and, and especially us in the saddle game. But actually, Greg, if you don't mind, I'd like to take it back a little bit and kind of learn where you're from, where you grew up and who was your big influences into getting hunting. Yeah, man. Uh, so, so I'm, I'm from the Midwest and, you know, almost, kind of the southern part some, some of your listeners are probably going to pick up a little bit of the accent that i've actually tried kind of hard to, to lose over the last 20 or 30 years but uh, i grew up in, in a little part of, of missouri called the boot hill and it's if uh, if people aren't familiar with the geography of missouri it's it's on the southeast corner it's the little part that sticks down into arkansas so i actually grew up about three miles from arkansas and so that's where you know that that big accent comes from is if you're you know southern very southern illinois southeast missouri northeast arkansas tennessee kentucky all that's within an hour of where i grew up at so yeah. uh yeah grew up there and and my dad was absolutely you know the influence i mean before i got old enough to tag along with him you know we grew up we in the boot hill when i grew up there were not deer so i i started tag along hunting and fishing you know dad took me fishing i mean when i was probably three four or five years old i didn't get to start going hunting with him until i was probably seven or eight but uh my dad was a big rabbit hunter and he had a buddy that they went out and and they just literally walked miles and miles and i, was, I remember when i before i got to go with him I, I remember just you know we grew up really poor pretty much and little two bedroom one bath house and you know just he would come home at the end of a long saturday afternoon and take his rubber boots off and, and i remember he would just pour water out of his boots that he had been walking in all day and you know i don't know why he didn't do it before he got when he got back to the truck or whatever but i watched him do that several times when he got home 
And I just remember the influence that that had. I mean, I was like, I can't wait to do that myself. I can't wait to, you know, what we call the grind today and, and pushing through and doing doing hard stuff and stuff that, you know, the average person in, in, isn't willing to do. He did that every weekend. And uh, he got me started in rabbit hunting. And, and man, we killed. We, we, he eventually bought a. I remember when uh, we bought our first rabbit dog, and then we bought a second, and we had a had a couple a couple good beagles. And gosh, I, I grew up. If, if I didn't kill several hundred rabbits, I mean maybe even a thousand. I, I don't know. I mean we ate rabbits all the time, and uh, so that's kind of how I got my start. Oh wow! Hey, same kind of thing for me. I mean, I can remember my youngest experiences in the hunting world was running with rabbit beagles, shooting rabbits. You know, big group mm-hmm. of guys out and. Same kind of thing. I mean, we grew up poor's in the hills of Virginia, and you know, we we ate a lot. Where we we killed a lot of the stuff we ate. You know, deer and rabbit yeah. and squirrel, and I mean, there was nothing wrong with that kind of life. So, you know, uh, I, yeah. I imagine there's a lot of folks listening today that have that same kind of story. That you know, we're all kind of just blue collar, grinding yep. out people that come up. You know, and the way it's not a bad way to come up because it makes you appreciate everything you got now. So. You know, That's it's it, it's given me my work ethic. It's helped me succeed in my career, my professional career nowadays. And, and then I think more importantly and relatable to you know what we're going to discuss is, you know, it helped form the foundation of the way I hunt. And and you know, I, I've you know I've been fortunate to be a guest on several podcasts. And I tell people, look, I, I'm not the world's best hunter, and, and I've got a I've got a wall full of just incredible whitetails. But I, I still tell people, I, I'm I'm not the best hunter in the world, but I will outgrind anybody and, and i think that came from that that work ethic of watching my dad you know just you know he didn't miss a day of work for i don't know like 18 years he didn't miss a day of work at a factory i mean my wow. dad barely finished high school and that's just the kind of a guy he was and he passed that work ethic on to me and and you know I, 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 a lot of the guys will probably remember seeing the post i made on uh, it was either january 15th or january 17th of last of this year i guess but it was last deer season you know i killed a buck with 45 minutes left in the season and and he was a fairly nice buck and you know if that was i don't know sit 120 or something like that for me and so i'm just I'll, i'm just willing to outwork you know almost anybody and i'm sure there's other people who work hard but but I, i'm certainly willing to put in the work and, and just do whatever it takes to get it done and and that early foundation is is what led to that well it sounds like that's truly paid off in your life to without a doubt so where did the uh, so you know I follow you a lot too, but where did the big passion for the catfishing come along? Where did that start, dude? So you know, growing up in the Missouri Boot Hill in the southeast part of the state, you know, I, I mentioned we were three miles from Arkansas. We were seventeen miles or s- somewhere through there, eighteen twenty tops from the Mississippi River, and and I grew up. Dad took me to a lot of what we called ditches. They were more or less irrigation irrigation ditches that were man-made by you know to to drain the swamps of southeast Missouri so that they could start farming it. So there's a lot of man-made ditches that a lot of your listeners would call them creeks or, or small rivers or whatever, but, but we call them ditches. And, and my dad would take, take me, you know, fishing in those spots. And we were catching a lot of bluegill and pumpkin seed and long ear sunfish and largemouth bass. That was two and a half pounds was a trophy bass, you know, for us growing up. And so I grew up doing a lot of fishing and stuff, but we never, you know, dad, again, we were poor. We didn't have, I mean, we finally, when I was in high school, dad bought a, a, 12 and a half foot John boat with a nine, eight Merc. And that was a big deal to our family. So we didn't have the equipment to get out on the Mississippi or anything, but I always longed to, you know, I've, I've grown up really close to this world-class fishery. And so, you know, I, I 
I've been doing this mobile bow hunting deer whitetail thing for, you know, all my life. I mean, I'm in my 33rd year of doing it now. And, uh, you know, I just kind of started thinking about, man, that what else would, you know, what else can I do and take advantage of that, that's close. And just one day, you know, we're very fortunate. We're blessed financially. And, and I just, I was like, I, I'm just going to go buy a big catfish boat and, and start chasing the catfish scene. And, and we got into it. I mean, literally bought a, bought a boat and, and fished our first catfish tournament within about a month and had no clue what we're doing it it's been fun it's here's the cool thing about john my boys nowadays they'll tell you that you know gabe my my youngest son i talked about this with with jake bush is that he's grown up walking around the rooms and seeing these 150 and 160 and almost 170 class deer on my walls and he just thinks that's normal and, yeah. and he thinks that success and all that stuff that's just what he grew up with he, he didn't get to see the younger years of me failing and, and, and beating my head against the wall to learn a new concept and to, to figure all this stuff out, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so when I got into catfishing, the cool thing, the serendipitous thing about it is that my boys got to watch me completely and utterly fail. I mean, just, I had no idea what I was doing. And I started approaching people and asking questions. And I didn't realize that I was, we were going to these catfish tournaments. I didn't realize I was approaching literally catfish royalty. I mean, people that I was asking and just going up to and talking to, I didn't realize they were a hall of famers and stuff. And some of these guys jumped on our boats and, and we just, we had to figure things out. And we went, we went a year and a half without catching a, a, a catfish, learning the technique that we had to learn. Yeah. And I remember my oldest son walked in. I wrote a column about this on for Catfish Now magazine. My oldest son walked into the room after a tournament, and we didn't catch a fish that whole tournament. And, I mean, people were weighing in with, like, three catfish at 140 pounds for three oh, catfish, wow. you know. And and we didn't catch a fish. And I we were exhausted. We fished hard. My oldest son walked in as I was laying on the bed that afternoon after the tournament was over. He just stood at the door doorway of my bedroom and looked at me for a while. And I finally kind of looked at him and, He's just staring at me, and he goes, why haven't you quit yet? And uh, it kind of makes me tear up thinking about it right now. Oh. And I, uh, I looked at him. I said, you don't quit when you want to do something. You figure it out. And uh, he was like, you haven't caught anything in, in two years. I'm like, well, it's been a year and a half. It's, it's only been, you know, it's two summers, but it's a year and a half. He goes, so it's two, two seasons of fishing. You haven't caught anything. And uh, I'm like, well, I mean, we'll figure it out. And the next yeah. day we went out and is the day that we broke the ice and I caught a 45 and Gabe caught a 27. We doubled up simultaneously at the same time. First time we'd ever caught a fish and we doubled up and wow. that broke the ice and we took off from there. And now, you know, I, I caught this last tournament we fished, I caught a 64 and that's our, our, you know, my new record and Gabe's caught 62 this summer. And so, uh, yeah, but it's it's been really cool to watch to teach my boys the concept, and especially my oldest, the concept of persevering and overcoming. And you know, it, some things just don't come easy. You gotta you gotta work at it. Oh, I know. You know, it's so funny in today's world. You know, you and I grew up in a time where you know we had we come from a little bit more grit, a little bit more grind, and and yep. we earn we earn the things we got. And our kids, God bless them, we love them, and we we probably spoil them too much. But you know, exactly. they don't they don't realize that sometimes you've got to put a little work in for the things you want. You know, this just this week, uh, Monday, actually, my 11-year-old son killed his first deer. Uh, he'd been wanting to kill one forever, just been asking and asking. He finally grew up and got enough size on him where I thought he could handle a, you know, a high-powered rifle. Yep. Took him out for his first deer hunt, 
and then within an hour and a half, he's got a four point on the ground. Awesome. You know, and and he's excited, and he you know he, he's you know going through the emotions of the deer coming in and, and getting his, the crosshairs on him. I had to calm him down. I had to tell him to slow his breathing, take a breath. Yep. Yep. But you know, I explained to him. I was like, you know, Parker, <clears throat> I killed my first deer when I was eleven, and I said it was a doe, and I said I was sixteen before I ever killed a buck with any antlers on it. I was like, so you've yeah. got it lucky, son. You don't realize how lucky you've got it right now. I was like, but you know, you've got to learn that the, the things you want in life, you have to work for them. That not everything is going to be easy and handed right to you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, I I I mentioned the fact that I've been doing this for thirty three years. Well, obviously, I've been alive a lot longer than that. And you know, we did rabbit hunting. We frogged a lot. And we did all that stuff. But I didn't get into deer hunting until I was in college. And you know, I was already you know what because I took a year off with the army and and you know. 19 20 by the time i got into deer hunting it was like 26 by the time i learned enough to kill my first deer and i've been bow hunting you know ever since that day one and uh my son you know both of my sons but especially my youngest is a little little disappointed he's had you know he's had three 150 inch class deer in front of him and hasn't put one on the wall yet mm. and uh because he's a great hunter he's just got to learn to calm his nerves when he shoots and sure and and uh he's probably twice the hunter I am right now, to be honest with you. He's just, you know, he's got, he's got to kill a bunch. And that's, that's the difference between him and me. But I tell him that, you know, look, I didn't kill my first deer until I was, you know, my late twenties. And so you're 16, you've already had three one fifties in front of you, you know, mm, yeah. just think about the difference it's going to be when, when you get to be my age. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a different world for those guys. It is. And, you know, they've got so much more information available to them these days. You know? Oh yeah. For us, it was picking up a magazine at the, you know, the convenience store, maybe reading, you know, a deer and deer hunter magazine. You're exactly right. Or, you know, just, and then if you was lucky enough to have some people in your life that knew a little bit that would pass some stuff down. But, you know, we kind of learned a lot on our own. And, oh, uh, you know, once the My internet age took over and, and all this information yeah. was just out there, and especially social media, you know, it's gotten so much easier to access information. So Yeah. My deer hunting journey, I was about to say, sorry to the, uh, talk over you, but my, my deer hunting journey was very much, you know, like my catfish journey. I mean, it was beating my head against the wall for years. Mm-hmm. And, and here, my son, you know, by the time he was 14, 15, he's, you know, a student of Dan Infault and, and that whole, you know, mindset. And he understands thermals and, and, you know, pushing in and, you know, all this stuff. I mean, it's just crazy. Oh, so no. it's, it's amazing to watch, you know, the, just the expansion of of whitetail hunting in the last 20 25 years <clears throat> and 30 years you know i've been doing it a little over 30 years myself now and it's just like man you know to see what it's it's blossomed into and right you know so much stuff you're like well that's just like with the saddle which we'll get into you know i wish i'd have had a saddle 30 years ago oh god instead of packing around a 20 pound climber on my back in the mountains of virginia and west virginia you know sweating right. my, my tail off and working my butt off and then making all that noise getting in a tree i mean golly yep. i was like man this thing would have been a blessing <laughs> oh <days>. yeah yep. <laughs> wow so you killed your first deer in your late 20s i mean you've got a a great up, I mean, upbringing you know good uh, influences in your life so when did the mobile hunting take effect for you when did that kind of come into play well so you know it, it's so mobile hunting's been from day one uh you know i mentioned the fact that that we've been we were really poor and dad worked at a factory for 37 years and we i mean you know we didn't even have enough room that that 12 and a half foot john boat that i talked about we had to park in the front yard dad didn't even own enough land around his house to 
to be able to put the boat in the backyard. I mean, that's how little of a house and how little land we owned. I mean, we had to park the boat in the front yard. Um, so we didn't, you know, we were poor. I didn't know anybody. Dad, dad, mom and dad were not social people. I don't ever remember them inviting people over to the house. I didn't know anybody. I grew up pretty much an introvert and an only child. So, so, you know, we didn't have a lot of friends that owned big farms and stuff like that. That was out of the question. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know anybody who owned a farm or owned land or anything like that. So when I got to college, I decided to, uh, and, and actually the way I got into deer hunting, some people know the story, but you know, I grew up rabbit hunting and rabbits is what we ate a lot of the times for meals. And, you know, no, we didn't plan on me going to college. It was kind of a, a lark. I mean, it was just literally sitting around one day and I just decided I'd go like on a whim. And so we had no money to go to college. I took out a bunch of student loans and, and I mean, we were, I was broke. And so I was thinking about what I could do to put food on the table, to be honest with you, as a college student. And uh, I went out and tried to kick up a bunch of rabbits and and I'd kill one here and there in college, but that wasn't helping out with the grocery bill too much. And so uh, I picked up a, I went to Walmart one night. I was just bumbling around, wasting time. And I was in the sporting goods section and I picked up the Arkansas Game and Fish Wildlife Codebook and took it home and started looking through it. I'm like, I just stumbled across deer. I'm like, you know what? There are deer here, you know, unlike at home, there are deer here. And, And I went and I bought a, a used bow and I, it was the draw length was still long, too long. I've still got it on the wall as a memento, but uh, I just went, I found some public land and I ordered a steel V bar climber from sportsman's guide or whatever the precursor to sportsman guide was. Cause this was, you know, this was 1993 or so might've been 90. It was early nineties. And uh, I, I mean, I got to steel V bar climber in and a bow that, was not tuned too long and and i went out in the woods and i mean i just started and and it didn't matter if it was tuned to draw length was too long i didn't see a deer for forever and uh, i mean i did kill my first deer with that bow but it wasn't until many years later oh yeah and so i've been uh you know every time i went into the woods i went in with that climber and out with that climber because i mean we we didn't have land yeah. And uh, I did that for several years, and then I finally uh, I transitioned over. I got some Cranford uh, screw-in tree steps and a, and a hang-on, and I hunted out that for years. And, and I got a summit climber and did that for a while. And that was about the time I started getting, you know, we, I got married. I got online, and the Internet started, I mean, literally was, was developed. And, I mean, I was getting online when it was the bells and clicks and whistles, and you could the old dial-up thing, and you could, oh, you yeah. could hear your connect computer connect right <laughs> and uh and and i've always you know my degrees are in journalism and english and i've always been a writer and i started doing a lot of writing online as far as in forums and stuff and i got noticed er, in the early days a lot of the big manufacturers the the internet was so small everyone was online in the uh-huh. bow hunting groups so like summit and muzzy and all these these people had i mean if it wasn't the owner it was somebody high up in the company was online to establish a presence. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a far-fetched thing nowadays. I mean, maybe in some of the groups, like I know Andre DeQuisto and Cody and those guys get online. But, I mean, these were like, you know, big companies were in these forums. And and so a lot of these guys, you know, kind of noticed there weren't a whole lot of people who could really express themselves verbally and written and everything. So I got several invitations to, you know, help rep some companies. And it was different back in those days. It, It wasn't like, you know, you show a little skin or you do this and you're on pro staff. I mean, pro staff was kind of special back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got to come on, on uh, well, Muzzies too, but 
uh, Summit's pro staff, and and I got to go take a tour, and I think it was Decatur, Alabama, or so wherever wherever the the uh, it might not be Decatur, but wherever the uh, the Summit manufacturing facility is, I went down there and and you know met John Wooler, the the lab coat guy who was in all the commercials and and all that, and uh, I was I stayed with Summit for quite a while, and then uh, probably about I don't know I, at some point I switched over. I just wanted something lighter and even more mobile. And I switched to Lone Wolf, their hand climber, and I hunted for probably a decade out of the Lone Wolf hand climber before I found saddles several years back. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that again, that's probably going to be the same story a lot of us have is that progression as, you know, technology changes and, and things become available and, and information gets out there that you're like, ooh, I like that. And that's how this this whole saddle game started for me. You know, honestly, it was in the middle of the lockdown and COVID in 2020, and I just had a lot of time on my hands. <laughs> yeah. I got on YouTube, and uh, the first video I watched was the Hunting Public guys, and they had the guys from Tethered on there, and I'm like, what yeah. is this? And then <laughs> it started from there, and then I found your your channel, and I was like, oh, yeah, I've got to get in this game. And yeah. I, ordered, I ordered my stuff that spring, and, again, I copied everything you talked about. I got my one stick from EWO, and – and here I am. So, and I've so enjoyed. You started the right way early. <laughs> I did. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's the best video, and I refer this video to a lot of people on you know the pages that I'm on when they talk about one sticking. It's the one with your yeah. son. You're like yep. so easy. A 13 year old can do it. Yeah. And I'm yep. and man, I watched that. I was like, that is slick as you know, Eskimo snot. I was like, that is awesome. I was like, get me some of this. So yeah, I, yeah. It just took off for me, man, and and. I've loved every second of it, <clears throat> and I'm sure we can all agree there's so many advantages to it. But for me, one of the biggest things is just the security of a saddle. Oh, you, know, you know, hunting from a lock-on or a climber or a ladder stand, I never felt balanced enough to stand up and make my shots. So I always primarily shot setting down, which limited mm-hmm. me to that, you know, five five o'clock to maybe one or two o'clock window. Yeah, you know, yeah, and you know the saddle has just been a blessing. The rods feel so secure, and I feel so safe, and I've got 360 coverage around that tree, and that's just one of the things I've enjoyed about it. But there's so many other aspects to it too. But so, how did the saddle come into play for you? What what was the spark that got you into it? So I was still hunting on my lone wolf hand climber, and I had a had a buddy of mine who had just gotten into saddles, and and he just kept texting me over and over. He's like. Have I told you about this saddle thing? Have I told you how much I love my saddle? I mean, literally, it was like every day of the hunting season. Have I told you how much I love my saddle? And, you know, I had actually read John Eberhardt's book, you know, on uh, hunting pressured whitetails, and he had a chapter dedicated to saddles on it. And I remember I read a page or two, and I'm like, that's crap. And I skipped over that whole chapter <laughs> and went on to, you know, I was wanting tactics, strategy, you know, give me give me the, the good stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh and so I had heard, you know, obviously I, I was aware of saddles, you know, being immersed into the whitetail world and everything, but I just really didn't have a ton of interest. And then one day <clears throat> I was in a public spot as, as normal, I, you know, 100% public land. And uh, I was just one move up in my lone wolf hand climber and the, the top of the frame of my hand climber snapped. Oh, and. Yeah, and luckily I was only I was only a couple feet up off the ground. I just got up on the platform, and when it snapped, I mean it, it was useless at that point. And I remember I posted several pictures of it online, and uh, at, I remember Todd Prignitz was a buddy of mine 
Uh, a lot of people may remember him from White Knuckle Productions. We we kind of came up in the industry together, and he had done a little bit bit of work with Andre and some casting project, you know, mechanical engineering stuff. And he reached out to me and was asking about, you know, did it have potholes inside of inside of the uh, casting and everything? I'm like, no, man, it's it was just fine. And and but that was enough to make me think. I was like, hmm, that's and that was when my buddy who was all excited about saddles reached out to me too. And he goes, dude, you'd never have to worry about that with a saddle. And, uh, it just kind of, that just, that, that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll try it. And, uh, you know, I was very fortunate with some of the relationships I had in the industry and my writing at that point, I'd already published, you know, a ton of feature stories for Peterson's bow hunting and field and stream and different, different things. I've been a back page columnist for inside archery and, so I had enough where, wherewithal to, I just, I reached out to all these manufacturers and which at the time was only uh, Arrow Hunter and Tethered. Tethered had just entered the saddle game, to be honest with you. They, I mean, they had a Phantom or a, yeah, it was, no, it wasn't a Phantom. It was the it was Menace, the, uh, the No, it was even before that. Oh. The the very first one. Yeah. God, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm blanking the blank. now. I am too. On yeah. That one. Anyway, it was just their, their first little green one and, and, if, if you hadn't asked me, I could tell you tell you in a second, and I'm sure all the listeners are screaming it right now, right? But uh, <laughs> yeah, they they had just came out with their their first saddle. Uh, Arrow Hunter still had their first saddle. Um, I can't even remember its name now. But anyway, Sophia Greg Godfrey was kind enough to send me one. Sophia Sparks, the owner at the time of uh, Arrow Hunter, which now has went out of business, unfortunately. But they both sent me a saddle, and you know I wrote about them and, and took pictures of them and everything. And, and that's kind of what got me started. And, you know, then later on, I, you know, I hooked up and did a little bit of work with Wild Edge. And, and so I started to use their steps. I've got some live videos on, on my channel about, you know, using naders and suaders. I mean, it, you name the climbing method in the saddle world. And I mean, I've tried drills and bolts and, you know, I mean, I've done just about every climbing method you can think of with the exception. I always point out with the exception of SRT and DRT, I, Honestly, I, I know it may take some flat cord. I have zero interest in trying those techniques. I, you know, anytime I, I have to have a limb above me to throw a ball over, and I mean, I just that has zero appeal to me whatsoever. And because uh, I go in a lot of times blind in the dark, and and I, I mean, I wear a headlamp and I'm shining a flashlight around, but I, I just don't want to, you know, I, I have zero interest in that. But every other technique I've, I've pretty much done or tried or or mastered or, or something yeah and i'm the same way you know being where i'm at the, in the mountains of west virginia now the canopy's 70 80 foot you know so we have we have a lot of straight trees that are 60 foot yeah. up and there's no limb that you could srt or drt on anyway yeah um, so to me it's never been something i'd want to try and i can see it being beneficial for somebody like on a private piece that can do presets and leave the ropes in there and things like that but for the a true mobile system, I just can't see it being super effective. But I'm not against it if that's what somebody right. wants to use and they feel comfortable with it. By all means, be safe and do it safely, and have a 100%. good time. Have a 100%. good time. You know, you know and that's I, what I that's you. what we want to do. We all just want to have a good time. We want to enjoy God's exactly. creation and you know the creators that He puts out there for us to to chase and you know. But go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, Greg. no, you you nailed it. I was gonna say, you know, even with as many videos on technique and 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 style and, all, and equipment as I have, you know, I, I have so many. You know, I mean, I'm constantly answering PMs, as you can imagine. And, and I tell people, look, my my way hasn't got to be your way. I mean, as long like you said, as long as you're out there enjoying cre God's creation and and you're you know you're having fun, you're being safe. You know, 
take what I do, twist, you know, I, you know, I, I love the saying that, you know, when you steal from one person, it's called theft. When you steal from many people, it's called research, right? <laughs> and, and so that's the way I, I formulated my whole hunting technique and strategy. I've taken, I've, I've grabbed from this play, place and that person and, and take a little technique from here and there. And I've melded it all together to, to make my own and blended it together to make my own style. And, and I hope other people do the same thing, right? Absolutely. You know, there's so many options on packing your equipment in and how you deploy it and, you know, what you, how you hunt off this stick or that stick or this platform, you know, there's so many options of adjustments of your saddles and your tethers height and your lengths, you know, it's just something you got to put some time into, you know, for me, when I got into it, you know, I was fortunate enough to buy my stuff early in the spring, really kind of late winter. And I practiced all spring, all summer, making my climbs with my one stick shooting from, you know, an elevated position and from a saddle and just climbing, climbing, climbing. And I got to a point where I did it in the dark with a headlamp. So I get used to doing it in the dark. And that paid off for me because the first season in, and it was my fault. I let the battery die on my headlamp and I didn't have a backup light. So I'm walking in the dark and I'm like, well, I'm gonna have to do a climb in the dark. So I just kind of used what little ambient light I had, seeing I could get up this tree and I did it all in the dark. And because of that muscle memory I'd established from all the practice, I was able to do it safely. I had to go slow, a little bit slower, obviously, but it still worked for me. So. Yeah. Well, well, you know, you bring up a good point there, John, is <laughs> what a concept is, is practicing. And, and, and more importantly is buying your, you know, I, I know some people, they don't find out about this. You know, they get all excited about it during the season, but I'm just shocked at, at all the people that, that start during the hunting season, you know, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, if there's one thing we could tell, tell listeners is, man, practice, 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 you know, don't put your gear up on in January or February. And I mean, I'm as I'm, I'm the world's worst about switching seasons and we get really hardcore about turkeys and then we get really hardcore about fishing and, you know, and, and trapping. And so we jump from season to season, but for, for people who don't have as much experience as us, man, be sure and, and practice in the off season that, that we can't stress that enough. Absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of the folks that you see, that get into it and then almost jump right back out of it do it because they didn't have that time in the, in the saddle or the, the climbing method, the practice of it. And they've gotten scared or something's kind of got a little quirky for them. And they're like, Oh, I can't do this. But if they would have just yep. spent a, spent a little time slowing down, practicing it and getting their routine down, they would have right. probably found out that, Hey man, this is, this is worth the investment. And that's yep. another thing, you know, equipment wise. Yeah. I mean, you can go as low end as you want, but you know, Something I try to tell people, hey, if you're not in a financial position at the moment, save up and invest in the higher end stuff because it's going to make your experience so much better. So Um, much. Because if you're using that lower end stuff, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's not going to work like you think it should. And then you're going to have a bad taste in your mouth for a saddle after that. So Yeah. You know, I saw something not too long ago, I don't know, a day or two ago, is talking about, you know, just just the money we as Americans blow on, you know, coffee and Starbucks and this and that and, and you know, just whatever it is. And, you know, people complain about a $300 one stick or, or a $50, you know, repel roll for whatever. And, and I just think about all the money we blow at McDonald's and Hardee's and all these other things. And, you know, if you're like me, I mean, you know, my life is consumed with whitetails. I'm sitting here looking around. I'm sitting in my, my lower level of my house now. I'm look, looking around. I mean, I've just got deer after deer after deer after deer after deer staring back at me. I'm like, 
man, my life really is consumed with these animals. And, and if you're like me, I mean, just delay gratification just a little bit. I mean, don't look at the initial six, seven, eight hundred dollars, whatever. Break it down to twenty dollars a week and, and just stop going to McDonald's or whatever. And, and it's to your point, it's so worth having the good gear. If, if, if you're going to do this at, at our level, I mean, the, the good gear is just it's just so worth it. It is. And I can't preach that enough to folks, you know, take your time. Don't jump into it this season. Save up through the spring, you know, tax income taxes, come back, whatever, and invest in good, invest in the good stuff. And your experience is going to be so much better. So, yeah, I think we're on the same page there, Greg, for sure. So, you know, we've we've kind of covered, you know, your, your upbringing and how you got into the saddle game. So if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about tactics, how you use the saddle and, and how you hunt these deer and these these upper class 150 160 plus deer and how how that kind of you know comes together for you yeah so you know i I mentioned we've been mobile from day one and and i really have been and and it's really that that kind of just led to where i am today i guess if if you could sum me up in in one phrase or or one description is i really am the king of bounce in other words, I bounce, bounce, bounce. I, I rarely sit, I rarely sit the same tree twice. Uh, I don't even hardly hunt. I, we're very blessed here in the Midwest and around me. We've got a bunch of conservation areas and, and, and they might be a 40 minute drive apart or whatever, but we've got a bunch of them. And I, there's a lot of times I don't even hunt the same conservation area, but maybe four or five times a year. And, and when you're talking about a hundred sits in a year, which is what I easily average, you know, that means I'm bouncing around a lot. And, mm-hmm. and so, uh, you know, it's funny. I actually hit one area during, you know, kind of the peak of the road. I, I came off my vacation. I, I always have my vacation November 3rd through the 11th, uh, wherever, somewhere in through there, whatever week that is, is when I take my vacation. And I did hit one area twice. And I noticed that the same truck was there and guarantee you that dude was hunting the same tree. Right. Mm-hmm. And, I, I rarely, I don't do that. I mean, I just, so, so that's the key. If you're talking strategy, uh, may, I don't know if you'd call that a strategy, a tactic, what, which classification you want to put that under, but, but I am constantly moving. And it's so funny because the deer that I do kill, I kill a lot of those. I mean, you know, we can talk about that a lot. I think that's, that's key to a lot of our success. It's a foundation of our family. We don't, we haven't had to buy red meat in this grocery store in 27 years. And so I, I kill a lot of a lot of those and that helps me kill a lot of bucks uh because i'm just so in tune and so ready to go at the when the time's right but all these deer that i you know i usually you know right or wrong i usually voice front my deer to a stop whenever i'm ready to shoot them i just a lot of people like to let them go natural and shoot them walking whatever i my preference is i just give a little you know and and stop it and, and then drill them and every deer that i do that to if they happen to look i mean it's just like they are completely completely taken unaware they're like they have no idea and because they're just not used to a human being in that tree in that location because chances are is because you know, i'm i'm i don't know i just i just have a feeling that i'm probably the first person to ever sit that tree ever and, and that's a big part of my strategy is just moving around and, and being very very mobile and some people might even say i actually saw a post online a couple days ago or maybe it was yesterday that said can we be too mobile and then maybe, maybe so if, if I've got a fault, that would be it. 
Now, before you go into these places, are you e-scouting, looking for you know thick bedding areas? Are you looking for ditches? What 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 do you try to zone in on to, to know where to go? I do. So I, I I look I look for habitat diversity on a map on on a you know a, a hunt stand or or a, we use Onyx a lot because all all three of my boys can log into my account if they drop like my son right now I, because I had I had a busy day day and. Like we mentioned at the start of this top of this podcast, I wasn't able to get out tonight. It's the first night in, I mean, weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. I haven't been in the woods. And, but my, my youngest son drove over and hunted a spot. And as soon as I, as soon as he got in the woods, he dropped a pin because in case something happens, whatever. And because he dropped that pin on my account, I can see it. And so we all, both my boys drop pins wherever they're at and we all share the same account. So uh, we use Onyx for that. And maybe other apps can do that. I'm not saying they can't, but I know Onyx can because I've been doing it for years. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but yeah, I'll get on Onyx and, and look at things. But to be honest with you, John, that's just the very, very start of it. What I'm looking for when I go in, and I've talked about this time, times before, I'm really looking for an edge within an edge. That, that's my philosophy that I've come to call it, is you can, you can see an edge of maybe where, you know, the soybean field transitions and, and ends and it, it's woods up against it. That's a very obvious hard edge, right? Yeah. But what I'm really looking for is going down, going back on further into the woods and maybe looking for, there's a bunch of green briar that switches to, you know, pines or well, we don't have a lot of pines here, but sometimes you'll run into a cedar ridge or something, or, or maybe it's just, I don't know, something very, very, what I want to do is I want to find something that's not visible on a map. I want to find yeah. something very subtle that it takes a trained set of eyes to look and go, that's an edge that a deer is going to follow in all this other stuff. That's kind of what I'm looking for. That makes sense. Yeah. So I actually had a buddy of mine that, that uh, we were texting each other back and forth or private messaging each other on Facebook, actually. And uh, he's like, what, what are you, you know, he asked kind of the same question. What are you looking for? And I actually took a video of it, sent the video on to him through private message. I'm like, look at all these woods around here and then look to my right. And there was just some kind of overgrown, sort of like honeysuckle looking stuff. And it was kind of hard to pick up in the video. I'm like, but if you look really closely, there's a, there's a line shooting off that way. And I'm sitting right on it. And I said, there's been four bucks and three does that has cruised this edge this morning. And, and the, like I said, the untrained eye really wouldn't have seen it. They would have just walked right on through it and not really picked up on it. And and that's the subtle, subtle kind of stuff that I really love to focus in on. So are you picking these places out, you know, e-scouting and then, you know, getting some cameras in there to kind of confirm what you think may be there? Or? Typically not, to be honest with you. We started running cameras a couple of years ago more than we ever had in the past. And the brand I ended up choosing, I, I'm not very happy with. We, I've watched so many animals walk right in front of a camera as I've been hunting over it, and it didn't didn't even send me a picture. So um, we have not relied on cameras a lot. I, I've I've got another buddy that I'm helping out in in Mississippi, and uh, he's actually invited us to go turkey hunting with it with him, and we spent some time with him. We've been talking back and forth, and he used to hunt over bait piles. He wants to get away from that and become a real hunter. And uh, <laughs> sorry if I offended anybody there, but <laughs> he uh, you know he he's really trying to learn how to how to hunt and through, you know, woodsmanship and, and stuff like that. And, and I've told him about this whole edge strategy and everything. And so he, he asked me questions a lot and he's like, do you, are you looking for a lot of sign? Are you looking for scat? Are you looking for deer droppings? Are you looking for rubs and scrapes? I'm like, not really. 
I'm really just looking for that edge because if I can find that subtle edge, I know the deer are going to be there. Now, if I can find some scrapes, I find some rubs, more power, you know, all the better, right? But but I'm really just looking for that edge, and and in a really high concentrated deer deer area, but you know, the ag country that I typically hunt, I know they're going to be there, and so so that's the real thing. I mean. Yeah, I mean, well, I look for footprints and droppings and all that stuff. Yeah, but it does not take that for me to have to sit up on it. So basically, you've come to trust that your instinct that, you know, deer, these transition edges that you talk about, you know, these are common places that deer are going to be. You're exactly and you, right. And I agree with that 100%. You know, uh, in, in these mountains and hills I live in, you know, there's, a, you know, logging and, you know, that industry is big here. So if you can find those clear cuts where, you know, you're on the edge of that clear cut and that's a hard edge where you're going to have deer transitioning from yeah. an open hardwood, an oak flat into that clear cut, into those being you know, a big 12 foot briar patches and, uh, or a big laurel thicket or, you know, just whatever the case is. So right. you know, I, I think that's a, you know excellent strategy. And I think <clears throat> we've all, and I'll say we, because I do it too. We probably have come to rely on camera data too much. And we've gotten away from woodsmanship and finding those edges, finding scrape lines, rub lines, you know, oak flats, and just getting back to hunting deer where deer are versus, well, he's not on my camera. He's not daylighting. I'm not going in there. And right. I, I think it's where people are kind of shooting themselves in the foot sometimes is they're relying too much on a camera these days. Yeah. You know, probably the best thing, it, it kind of really ticked me off, to be honest with you. The, the cameras we were using, I, I took one of them to Kansas last year. I, I put it on video mode. I set it right in front of me. I was doing my best to kill a kill a bird, a turkey, without a blind, from the ground, with a bow. And uh, and we had a, a beautiful turkey come in and work the, work the decoys and and I uh, got great footage of it, and I went back later, and I, I was wanting to look at that second-angle footage of, from the trail camera because, I mean, it was right there in front of it, right? And it didn't pick up any of it, and it was pointed right at it. And I, wow. so I was really, really mad about that. And then later on, I got to noticing that, that you know, I hunted over a couple of I'd go in and hang a camera and then hunt right there and because uh, I was trying to get some footage for this, this camera, and uh, – I had a had a really nice two and a half year old buck and, and a doe and a fawn walk by and I'm like I'm waiting for it to send send video to my phone and nothing. Pull the camera the card later that night, nothing. And I've had that happen happen several times now. And I'm like and, and the more I check around, it's not just this camera manufacturer. I, I hear a lot of people talking about that, you know, there's they're miss cameras are missing a lot. Oh, and they so, are absolutely without a doubt. Yeah. So to your point, if you're relying just on that data I mean, and, and that's what's determining if you're going in that day or not. I mean, I think that's completely wrong. And, and yeah, there's there's so many deer out there and so many, you know, so many opportunities to go out there and, and make something happen that, yeah, yeah, we, we rarely, I mean, we're getting a point where we don't rely on cameras at all, hardly. Yeah, you know, and through my experiences and, and listening to different folks talk, you know, yeah, I think there is events that kind of can elevate deer movement, you know, like a cold front. Or, you know, you know, things like that. But, you know, you hear the term, you can't kill them sitting on the couch. And then you hear some guys say, well, I wouldn't hunt until a cold front comes through. Well, deer are going to move. They're going to get up. They're going to feed. They're going to find water. You know, a buck in mid-October is going to start, you know, marking his territory. He's going to start, you know, zoning in on his core area. These deer are going to move. So 
right. you said, you know, this is the first night you've not been in the woods in, in weeks, you know, so obviously you're a guy that's going to say, hey, you got to get out there and hunt these deer if you want to kill them. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, you, deer are, it's so funny. I, I, I laugh at the term, you know, you hear the phrase nocturnal deer, this, this buck's nocturnal. Whatever. No, no he's, he, he lives 24 hours, seven days a week. He's alive. And, and so he's not just completely sitting in his bed all 24 hours, you know, no. or, or 12 hours of the day. He is getting, what you might have to do is be a little smarter about it and figure out where he's living at and push in closer to his bedding area. And, and you know, it, you said you follow me on Facebook and a lot of other people do as well. You know, I, I post a lot of pictures sometimes of, you know, I might have a 14 yard shot on some of my hunts. And, and so, those are those are nights that I'm going for broke and I'm pushing in tight, dead in the middle of a bedding area. And, and those nights, it might take me an hour to work my way in and climb and get up in a tree. And, and so that I'm so and so I can climb super quiet. It's more the getting into the, you know, walking in and, and take a couple steps and stop, you know, wait for 45 seconds to a minute, then take a couple more steps and stop. It, it's that kind of a thing that takes the time. Yeah. And so. But yeah, though the deer are there. You just got to get either tighter to the bedding area or figure out something else. So you're not afraid of being super aggressive when it comes to chasing these deer. And obviously, being mobile like you are has helped you become confident in that. I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, because if I, here here's my fail safe or or my backup is that I hunt so many areas. I'm not scared to pull a deer out. If I mess up that area. Well, you know what? I've got a hundred other areas I'm going to be hunting before the season's over. Sure. So, so I'm not I'm not scared to get in there and bust one out. Yeah, and you know, you got to be in the woods, and it's a grind, you know. And speaking of that, how has your season been this year? What's 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 your season look like? Well, it's you know, it, it's my season is always a grind. Um, unfortunately, it could have been over on November sixth. I did something I haven't done in close to 20 years. I actually shot a really, really nice buck the morning of November 6th. And unfortunately, I, I the shot the shot broke clean. My shot execution was perfect. Uh, arrow flight was awesome. I completely misjudged the yardage. And, and uh, he was a little farther out than I thought, probably about 13 yards out further than I thought. Uh, I shot, I don't know, I, I just had a brain, brain fart and froze and, and put my top pin on a 33-yard deer. And I hit him about an inch below the heart, maybe two inches below the heart. I mean, I just caught right underneath his brisket mm. and uh, cut a bunch of white hair. Got a complete pass through. The arrow looked good and made a good solid thump. But when he, he turned and he kind of trotted off about 30 yards, and this was about a 150 class deer on November 6th. It was actually the morning I made a post on Facebook. And I said, it would have been su such a beautiful thing, John. I, it, it would have been a dream come true. It was the morning I kayaked back into this spot, and I oh. made a post on Facebook. I said, uh, let's see what we can float out today. I did see that, that post. <laughs> yeah, it was that morning I uh, I shot this buck, and uh, I got it got a pass through. The arrow was red, and uh, but it, it, it wasn't. I mean, it was more muscle and stuff. And there was there was a clop of white hair there where I where I cut through its brisket. And uh, he he walked off and 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 stood about probably about sixty yards away. Stood there for about four or five minutes. And I'm I, I was completely honest. I mean, I haven't wounded a deer or shot one that I didn't recover. Or what? I mean, ninety nine percent of the deer I watched drop in sight. And 
because I shoot a large cutting diameter mech mechanical and I tune my bows. I've never had a problem with the mechanical not opening or all those excuses that people say. I mean, I've, I've killed well in triple ditches of deer and probably 50 of them have been with, with the head I shoot. And, and I don't know, I bet two or three of them have walked, have went out of sight and I still recovered those within 80 yards. Yeah. So this deer that, you know, he walked, he, he trotted away and then he stood there for, I mean, five minutes in one spot. And when he didn't topple over and his tail wasn't, wasn't helicoptering and he wasn't leaning, I'm like, something was way wrong here. And I'm watching him and watching him and watching him. And, and he, then he walks another 30 yards or so and stands for about five more minutes. And then he beds down. And at that point, I turned around to hang my bow up. When I, I, all I could see was his rump. He bedded down behind a big old tree. And uh, I hung my, turned around, hung my bow up. And when I turned back around, I couldn't find him in my binoculars again. And I don't know if he got up in that short little time or if I just couldn't find him. And uh, so I waited about another 30 minutes. I got down, rappelled down super slow. I mean, every, like, every couple feet I'd go down on my rappel rope, I would look for him in my binoculars. And I uh, could not find him. I walked, I snuck over real quietly, got the arrow. I thought it looked good. It was early in the morning, so I kayaked back out, waited five and a half hours, went, went in with both boys, and we found two little spots of blood that were smaller than your fist mm. within 50, 60 yards, and that was it. And so um, so that, that, was, that was pretty disheartening. I mean, first, first deer I've lost in a long, long, long time. It was simply because of my brain fart on, on yard estimation. And, uh, but I'm confident that deer is alive. I mean, because I gritted, I mean, we, we all three gritted that for four or five hours easy and could not find another speck of blood. It hadn't rained, nothing. It was the same day and, and just couldn't find, I mean, that deer was alive. Oh, so, man. um, so yeah, that, that's, that's been a little bit of a down bummer. First time, first time in many 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 years and the first big buck that i've ever shot that i didn't recover so you know i i hate to say it happens but you know i i don't want to be you know i was pretty down about it for a while but you know i'm back in the back in the uh back in the seat now and and uh going at it hard again so we'll, well. see what happens I, the thing is my son and i talked about it is that we typically only get one one good opportunity a year the way the way we hunt the grind and we bounce around it's public land and you know there's all kinds of other hunters out there too so that may have been my only opportunity this year i don't know but we're going to hunt hard the rest of the year and see see what happens you know now that the peak of the road has kind of passed for most of us in the country what is your tactic now are you trying to zone in on food sources or are you still looking for those edges what do you kind of look for now so i will i will stay on on the edges and stuff but honestly um the week of Thanksgiving has been a really good week for, for us as far as still having bucks cruise. And at least in this area in the Midwest, a lot of the, a lot of the big bucks that were locked down last week with does and everything are starting to cruise again here. Uh, I, I came upon a, came upon a scrape walking out of the woods this morning that had been opened back up in the middle of the woods. Okay. And so a lot of the bucks are starting to come off the does and start looking for those, you know, few remaining ones. And uh, so, so th- we've still got another good week ahead of us of, of cruising. And it's my, it's actually my youngest son, Gabe. It's his favorite week of the year. It's a, it's a week that he saw, saw a, a, a 173. He's on our channel, the Booner. Uh, he's had that 173 at 16 yards in front of him uh, two years ago. He's, he's had some really, really good experiences on Thanksgiving week. So uh, 
So, yeah, we'll be hunting hard just for rutting, cruising bucks for another week. And then after that, once we get into December, I'll start shifting more to cold weather food sources, okay. uh, which predominantly for me means cut corn, corn okay. fields. That sounds like a excellent strategy to me. I mean, you really can't go wrong because once those bucks have kind of ran themselves down in November chasing these girls around, they've got to get, you know, some body fat built back up, to survive yeah. the, the long winter that's to come. Real quick, has EHD been a factor for you guys? I know some folks in Iowa have dealt with a big outbreak. Has it hit you guys in Missouri? It has not. And I, I've been hunting around a lot of water water sources and sloughs and creeks. And like I said, I've kayaked in, you know, this year. And, and I, I have not seen any, you know, any sick deer. I haven't seen any, you know, found any dead ones floating or anything like that. So okay. I can't say that it has. So, no, not, not for me personally. So did you all – experience the drought that like maybe Iowa and, and that way did or did y'all get a little bit more rain this summer than we no it, it, it was a drought you, you know you, we talked about catfishing a little bit earlier I mean it got to the point where there were only two ramps between St. Louis and Memphis that we could put our boat on oh, wow. know, on the Mississippi so it, it it's been pretty pretty bad here now it's interesting you talk about that because I actually made a post about this on Facebook as well and I had a lot of people corroborate my story I've heard more deer sneeze this year, specifically bucks. I've heard had more bucks sneeze, and a lot of them have given themselves away. But I, you know, I'm facing the tree, facing one way or another, and all of a sudden I hear a sneeze behind me, and I turn, and it's a it's a buck. Wow! And so it's weird. And I, I made that post I don't know a month ago or so about I've heard more deer sneeze this year than ever before, and a whole bunch of people jumped on and kind of again corroborated the story and said, yeah, it's same same for me. So. I don't know if it's those, you know, those midge flies or whatever that, you know, that get up there and nest and, and really bother those those deer because of the drought or yeah. not. But maybe there's a correlation there. That could be. That's interesting little tidbit that the, the sneezes have been more abundant than, than normal. <laughs> it's given a bunch of deer away. You know, unfortunately, none of them have been shooters, but well, you know, it, it's been interesting. Well, Greg, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out to jump on and you know, you've been a member of the Saddle Cartel now for a while, and we're a, you know, we just try to put information out there for folks to kind of just soak up and, and take and run with how they want to, and we try to be helpful and encouraging, and and again, we appreciate your your membership and your support. We we see you jump on and kind of help folks out when they're asked questions, so we can't thank you enough for everything you've done for us and what you've done for the industry as a whole. I mean, you've been in the game for many, many years now, like, you, you know, like you've been published, and You've got a great YouTube platform where you put a lot of stuff out. So thank you for everything that you do for the hunting industry and specifically us at the Saddle Cartel. Well, dude, that, that's pretty humbling. So uh, thank you. Yeah, it, it's just, you know, it's just me being me. I'm, I'm not, I'm just, like you said, trying to be genuine. And, and I, I, I'm very blessed and fortunate. I've got a, I've got a ton of experience, been doing this for a long time. And so if I can, if I can help somebody cut a corner or take a shortcut from, from all the, the experience that I've got, I'm certainly more than willing. Hey, well, we can't thank you enough for everything you do. And, and I hope you and your sons and your family have a great holiday tomorrow and, and a good rest of the deer season. Yep. Same to you, John. All right, Greg. Well, happy holidays and take care. And I, I, I'm going to be keeping my eyes open for a 160 coming up on your page pretty soon. here. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Greg. Good talking to you, buddy. Okay. Thanks, man. All right. Thanks. Bye. Okay, bye-bye.